Hello, my name is Chris Salter and welcome to the Junior Family Law Podcast. A collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns. Hello, my name is Abby Pearce. I'm a solicitor at Mills and Reeve. Today I'm joined by Hebe Fawn, a solicitor at Burgess Salmon and Chris Salter, also a solicitor at Burgess Salmon. In this episode, we are going to be discussing cost forms, specifically Form H, which is the estimate of costs for a financial remedy hearing, and Form N260. We're going to be looking at these cost forms in the financial context, and we won't be covering costs in relation to children on the basis that they are very rare and not dealt with very often. So Form Hs are a classic junior task that we are often given. Chris, how do you tend to feel about them and completing them. Hi Abby. Yeah, it's one of those things which when you first start out, you're thinking, why am I doing maths? I've, I've become a lawyer. I want to do law. I want to do words. And now you're giving me Excel, you're giving this WIP, numbers, finances. Um, so at start, they're, they're quite confusing. They can be quite arduous. You're thinking, how long is this going to take me? I need to work out what? I need to break down how much? Where is this going? What's the purpose of it? I remember when I first started, I, I was told by a, a, a paralegal that the cost forms are so important that if you're even a penny out, you can lose everything for your client. Now, that was in disputes before I joined family law. And it really put me on edge when I first came to my first form H, thinking, what am I going to have to do here? How, how accurate and how detailed are these things? Um, and they are confusing. But over time, the more you do, the better they become. Abby, you mentioned that Form H's are a really junior task, and I'd absolutely agree with that. And I think one thing to be sort of mindful of is that when you get a court order in and you're diarising the deadlines to keep an eye on, Form H's aren't always included in that. And it's one of those things I would say that senior um, lawyers in the same case expect you to have an absolute handle of, and it's just something to keep an eye on, that actually the week that you've got a hearing, or is it two weeks even for um, final hearings, you need to be all over all over the Forms H. Um, is that something that's absolutely at your your door? Yeah, that's a really good point, Hebe. I, and I agree with what you both say. They are, when you first start doing them, quite daunting, but with practice, they, they do get a lot easier once you get the the method under your belt, they're quite straightforward in the end. I remember um, being really, really junior and having someone at my kind of level be like, oh, I love Forms H and rolling my eyes and just thinking that we would never get on. And actually, it is one of those tasks now that you quite look forward to. <laughs> Absolutely. I used to dread them, but now once you got it, you got it. <laughs> um, how, so that's how we feel about them. How do we think clients feel about them? I think the, the main thing is when you give them the format for the breakdown of, of the fees, including VAT, it's probably quite a sad and depressing thought for them because sometimes Form H's, especially the further proceedings you get, they can become quite chunky and actually having a figure broken down right in front of them saying this is how much you've spent on your financial remedy proceedings since the start, it can be quite depressing. Uh, we bill our clients monthly, so they never really see an overall breakdown with a figure of everything. But I don't think it's the most... Um, welcomed form which they receive. I agree. I think also the fact that the figures include VAT, as even if we are um, keeping them up to date with the running total as to where um, they are actually including VAT is just that extra um, sort of slap in the face for it. And what I have thought recently, though, is that since they changed the rules and you have to talk about um, the cost forms more with clients, which we didn't necessarily do in the same way before, uh, you do actually have to have that really open and honest dialogue with clients, which whilst it's a bit uncomfortable for um, everyone, we're very British, don't like talking about costs and clients don't necessarily like to um, be told about them. It, it's quite good because it does force you to have that conversation and, and break it down. And Abby, do you, um, how, how do you talk to your clients about 
across forms because I suppose we probably all do it in different ways. Yeah, so the approach we tend to take is just pick up the phone. So I would tend to finalise the form H, ping it over to the client and then pick up the phone and talk through it section by section with them. Um, and often just address any questions they've got kind of on the call um, and just feel make sure that they feel comfortable with everything that's in there and that they fully understand it all. Because as you say, it's quite daunting and it's quite sometimes quite big figures. So it's really important to break it down to them. Um, but yeah, sometimes if you can do it via email as well, wh whatever way you can do it to break it down to the client in the most effective way. I, what do you guys tend to do? We tend to um, email, but obviously with the option to call just because then there's sort of a record of it happening. But I think, especially in terms of the cost that you're estimating going forwards, it's probably really good to have that conversation with them and explain that that's not saying what that's what they will spend. It's what they might spend if it got to that stage and kind of a worst case scenario. So actually having that reassuring conversation, is probably really good for clients and to have that um, reassurance there. Absolutely. Something else that's quite helpful to do in that regard is putting together a kind of a breakdown of next steps. That's something that we tend to do when looking at the, the costs for the next hearing. Um, just popping it in a spreadsheet, breaking down what tasks are left to do, for example, replies to questionnaire um, and speaking to your, your team and the people you're working with and just working out who's going to incur what time on the file for each task. And it then helps the client see exactly how you've got to that figure. And it's quite a, a helpful way for you as a junior as well to understand exactly how you've got to the figures you're putting on the form. I don't know about you both, um, but I really like the fact that they've changed the form and you now have to put in the figure to the next hearing. Um, it, it's a bit thinking further ahead and it is a bit of a tedious one when you've got your method down for the form H and now they've stuck this thing in. But actually, it's a really good way to focus the client's mind um, in a way that us saying you need to negotiate, want to settle and actually having something saying if you don't, this is what it might cost you. I think that's invaluable um, and a really good way to put it in black and white. I would agree on that. It's just especially especially the FDR stage when you're going from FDR, where you're saying this is your opportunity to settle here, FDR to final hearing. Costs can be huge. They can almost double from what they've spent to get to the FDR stage. And actually having that discussion before the FDR saying, look, if you don't take this opportunity seriously to try and reach some sort of agreement or at least narrow the issues, you may well be spending this amount to get to the next hearing. We all have clients that say that they'll they'll take it all the way at any cost. And actually, when you put that form in front of them, they realise that there is a price and they're not willing to pay it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely really good at helping focus minds on potential settlements. OK, so without delving into too much of the law and the procedural side of things, I think it'd be quite helpful if we give a, a brief overview of the, the general principles to be aware of. So the one thing that it's important to, to flag with your client early on is that generally they won't recover costs. It's the principle that each party will pay their own um, unless there are grounds to make a costs order. So here, just slightly delving into the family procedure rules, um, a judge might make a cost order if um, a party's failed to comply with a certain direction or if one party has been really unreasonable in pursuing an allegation or any conduct that the court considers relevant to the extent that it would make a costs order. Um, but that tends to be relatively unusual. I think the general approach that we find is, yeah, each party will um, meet their own costs. That's true. And I agree that it is really unusual. I just I wonder now, as, as we move towards um, remote hearings and, and what the future may look like following this pandemic, 
first appointments, they may never be in person again if, for example, they stay mm-hmm. online all the time. But may there be cost penalties for those who still insist that first appointments must go ahead. There is a direction from the court that if you can agree directions before a first appointment, you shouldn't actually have to attend. I just wonder if in the future that could be an opportunity where some some solicitors think, actually, if, if we're not going to negotiate and be and have sensible discussions on directions may that be one where cost orders could be awarded i don't know that's really interesting i hadn't thought about that but actually the fact that you're incurring barristers fees when you could deal with everything on paper as we've been told to do i suppose even for us it's the thing that we could flag to clients that that might be something that the court would um not hold against someone but penalize you for if you were being unreasonable over some really small points Definitely. There are many cases where first appointments will be absolutely necessary to narrow issues. But there are also ones which I'm sure we see come across our desk regularly where it's two or three smaller points which really should be able to be sorted without the need to go before a judge and, yes, incur the costs of attending a hearing with barristers. I suppose that uh, the point is with costs, and we say this to clients often, it kind of all comes out of the same pot. If you're dividing a pot into two and, yes, wife may be paying for hers and husband may be paying for hers but it's diminishing the whole asset pot so it's in everyone's interest to keep them down. So in terms of um, the kind of deadline for getting these forms filed generally we found over the last uh, year that the court have become a lot uh, stricter with complying with the FPR so you have to file your form H at least a day before the hearing and form H1 for the final hearing at least 14 days before and generally, we're finding it stricter in the sense that if you don't comply with those deadlines, it would be recorded uh, within a recital to the order. And you, it, it, it's no longer the case where you can just turn up at the hearing and exchange on the day. Um, but, you know, something I always recommend if basis is, you know, emailing it in as well as taking physical copies for the court on the day. Yeah, it feels weird that you used to print out all the copies and you'd go with sort of a, a small stack of every document including that form H's to hand out around the courtroom that just feels like a completely alien concept that was it, it was it almost when I was when I paralegaled about yeah just over a year ago it was always five copies I was told always took five copies to court ready to hand them round to whoever might possibly want one no the poor trees must have recovered so much so in terms of any other tips and tricks we've got for Form H, um, have you got any kind of fast secrets that you'd recommend to make the job a little bit easier? I don't know how to answer this, Abby, without sounding like a complete geek, um, but here we go. So I think that everything should be written down when you're doing your Form H. I know that Chris and I think probably you and most of um, the population will do this on a computer, but I'm still very much pen and paper. And I think that you need to break down every invoice, split off what are the divorce costs and what are the children costs if they're related. So you've just got the pure financial costs. And then you end up with this running total, and don't forget that, going down that you can then refer back to because actually it's all very well that you've done your form H and you absolutely know what it is but in six months when you've got the next hearing and you're having to update the form H it's no good you need to be able to see where you've got the figures from what you've pulled off and I think everything like that should absolutely be um, written down and the other um, geeky (laughs) tip is I think that you should have a list of all the things that you're likely to forget and we've all been there when you've got a form h and you're a bit under pressure it's it can be easy to forget that on the whip or the estimated costs or even to not tally up what's been paid and what's 
the total and that difference is really important so actually just having a sort of a tick list and I I know from experience that Chris really enjoys a tick list so actually maybe I'm in good company here <laughs> yeah you've got that with tick lists absolutely and it's interesting how you say you still like to do it on paper when I, I love to use excel to work all these things out for me and just to reinforce some of the points which you just made it's really important to make sure that divorce costs are removed any ad hoc advice you've given in relation to children at proceedings potentially this is just looking at financial remedy and then to take it further when working out what's been paid to date you can't just take the figure which your client has paid because that will include payment towards these divorce costs or payment towards this ad hoc children advice for example so it's making sure that you work all of those out as well to give the court a very clear picture of what has been spent from financial remedy proceedings what has been paid because the important figure what they want to know is what's outstanding really it was interesting when we spoke about this um, before, actually how we all do have a different method for doing it. So I know that Chris prefers to use the technology that um, firms have and the billing technology, whereas I prefer to actually just look at every invoice that's gone out and cross off. I am making myself sound very modern, I know, and cross off every payment and actually just do what works for you. And once you've got your rhythm, you just need to stick with it. And that that's fine. And just another thing on that stage is also the form looks at disbursements, which you've incurred, which include council fees, which have VAT. But always note, there is no VAT to pay on court fees and no VAT on land registry fees. So everything generally has to have VAT included, but make sure you don't include VAT to an overall disbursement figure if that includes court fees or land registry fees as well. Perfect. So those are really helpful tricks and tips. Something that kind of popped into my head as we were speaking then was um, in relation to fees incurred by previous solicitors. So I know that we had a brief chat about this earlier. If your client has come to you and they've had solicitors involved separately in the past, it's working out what they've incurred with that solicitor and making sure that you're providing for that in the form. We were kind of talking earlier about how it might sometimes be difficult to get that figure. And I think a lot of the emphasis will depend on how heavily involved the previous solicitors were. If they were involved up to the first appointment quite heavily, you want to be including those costs. So it it might just be a case of asking the client to reach out and try and get their old invoices sent to them. I don't know what approach you tend to take. I was going to say that's something you could add to my tick list because actually that's so something you could forget because you're busy and you know when you took it on and actually they've had however many hours of advice or they've had another solicitor act for them for a few months and that's something that they still are entitled to put on the Form H and should be putting on the Form H but could very easily get overlooked. So yeah, I think that's absolutely something to flag and also having the other solicitors break down what was financial and divorce because... Maybe they're not going to let me look at their invoices with my pen. Absolutely. And it seems a really obvious one, but it's just making sure when you're looking at the the Form H and the way that it's broken down into separate sections, that it is split into different boxes, the fees for current solicitors and fees for previous solicitors. Just be careful you're not slipping your current fees into your previous fees box. Um, Quite an easy thing to, to, to do, but just try not to. Definitely easy to do. So just looking again at at the Form H, there are two columns, one for um, publicly funded services and one separately for an indemnity rate. So it's just making sure if you're doing um, publicly funded work, you're making sure that those fees go in the right box. And if you're doing private work, that you're putting them in the right hand uh, boxes. I I think we've spoken about Form H in quite a lot of detail now. Um, It might be worth just 
mentioning Form H1, Chris? Yeah, absolutely. So there is a difference. Um, Form H1 is the form you'll use for final hearings. So Form H is for financial remedy proceedings up to FDR and anything you have after that, which is not the final hearing. So the difference is that the Form H1 is a little bit more detailed. Again, it includes a box for what you may incur for implementation of a final order, but it also asks you to break down your fee earners, so your schedule of fee earners, who's been working on the matter and what are their hourly rates. So just something to know that if you get to a final hearing, it's not a Form H, it's a Form H1 actually worth also flagging on that if it's a case that's been running a really long time and people's fee rates have changed because they've been promoted from or they've gone from trainees to solicitors as is probably more relevant for us um that also needs to be reflected great that's really helpful so now it might be worth having a very brief discussion about form nt60 so form nt60 is the form that you complete if you are going to be asking the other party to pay your client's costs on a summary assessment basis. So generally, I tend to complete Form NT60 via a Excel spreadsheet. Um, I know earlier we were speaking about our different ways of doing it. Um, Hebe, how, how do you go about uh, producing the NT60? It might surprise you both to hear that for the NT60, I actually use a computer. <laughs> The I feel like N260s are a bit like buses. You don't do one for ages and then one week you've got three. Um, they're just one of those things. But I um, tend to pull off the time from our billing software. I'm sure there's other ways to do it, but to build a spreadsheet from that. And then I um, colour code um, into the different sections because they've got different tasks. So there's obviously um, attendance on other side, attendance on client, things like that. So I tend to colour code and then filter by color and I can I can sense the surprise from you all that I've gone from pen and paper to filtering a spreadsheet by color but, you know I'm jack of all trades um, and then I find that quite easy to know which sections which and then just save that to the file so again same point applies that when I go back in a few months I absolutely know where I've got every figure from and I'm not having to redo the work to calculate where each figures come from in the form because it's not particularly detailed the N260 in terms of explaining where stuff's come from it breaks it down into minute detail but it doesn't ask you to explain where it's come from so I think as with Form H and Form H1 have your workings on the file you'll thank yourself later as will anyone who picks up the file if you if you end up not working on it anymore for whatever reason. I would agree. I use Excel as well to do these. I don't do it by colour heaps. I, I break them down by number um, as there's about 10 different categories. So I number them. And then as I go through the narratives of the time you're going to include in your N260, I put the corresponding number as to what category it falls in. And then you can filter that because once you filtered it by the number, you then have to split out the different fee rates to make sure you put it in the relevant box. If you're really savvy on Excel, you can start making pivot tables. I'm not going to explain what a pivot table is. If you know what a pivot table is, fantastic. If you don't, don't worry about it. Um, but there's many different ways you can do N260s. But I think this time computers and Excel is a, is a good way to start. This is why we're doing the podcast, because I always struggle to find 10 colours. And actually, uh, the fact that you can use numbers has slightly blown my mind. So I will come back to you having done my first N260 using numbers. <laughs> I think the numbers is a really good shout. So I use abbreviations, um, which can get quite confusing, but I also use it on an Excel spreadsheet filtering. So it's quite handy. 
I think a big tip that I take away from doing NT60s is the importance of when you're time recording, making sure your narratives are really, really clear and that you're kind of popping it into the right categories. Because when you get to the NT60 stage, it's a bit of a nightmare if you've got spreadsheets worth of kind of jumbled up timelines. So it's just kind of reminding yourself it's really important to keep your time recording narratives really, really clear. Yeah, definitely. A, a rule for life, isn't it, at your time recordings? But actually, we've all done it where you've just sat there thinking, I don't know what call means. That could be with anyone on anything. Um, what I'm finding really interesting about this is there's just three of us here and we've got different ways to do everything. So actually, I just wonder how many different ways there are to do everything. Just on the time recording point as well, also one of the things which at Burgess Allen we're told to do is, is to not really lump our time together. It's always to split it out. And actually, when it comes to an N260, it's a perfect example. If I did one time block for one client of three hours of multiple different things, when I come to an N260, it's like, well, blimey, how much do I spend on on each of these topics? I don't know. So then you're almost guessing. So if you're splitting out your narratives and time recording each discrete task as you go, not only are you helping your client by providing a proper breakdown of the work you're doing, but when you're completing these forms, you're helping yourself as well. Maybe with every time recording you should do, you should think what would what would future he be like? <laughs> and then we'll be we'll be sorted. Absolutely. Really great tips. Um Another tip that's just cropped into my head, actually, and it seems a really obvious one, but the N260 has a, a separate schedule for documents at the bottom. So it's quite easy to forget that you've got to split out your document work separate to your correspondence and your emails, calls, whatever. Um, so it's just making sure you're popping your document work in that uh, schedule at the bottom. That's actually a really good point because I know that I have had it before where you know you've spent lots of time doing something and it, it is it, because it's a completely different list. It just looks different and it it's separated out. I think it is really easy to overlook um, documents, which is normally where you spent a lot of time. It is, yeah. And making sure you include your time for your NT60 in the documents bit. It's so easy to, to leave that out, but making sure you include it because you're going to bill for it. Okay, so that was a whistle-stop tour of Form NT60. Okay, well, thanks both. That was a really interesting discussion I think we've given some quite helpful tips and tricks for what can seem like quite a daunting task but actually becomes quite a standard easy junior task when you get used to it um so thanks both thanks Abby I agree I think it's one of those um jobs that you should um make the most of because it, I bet it's one of the ones we'll miss when we're more senior and we don't get to do it <laughs> You have been listening to the Junior Family Law Podcast, a collaboration between Burgess Salmon, Mills and Reeve and Newton Kearns. We look forward to you joining us on the next episode.